And in this country, and people judge everybody but what, what they see on the tree. They see that. That's the visual, right? So that's what you see. But if once you understand the roots, you understand the person. And when I talk to police officers or corrections officers, social workers, whoever, I'm like, if you check out these roots, you understand how that person is sitting before you today. You understand, like, you almost appreciate the person that's 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 in recovery or struggling through because look at those roots. Look where they came from. Look what they grew out of. Welcome to Hope Stream, a podcast for parents of kids who are misusing drugs or alcohol or who are in active addiction, treatment, or early recovery. I'm your host, Brenda Zane, fellow mom to a son who struggled with addiction and nearly lost his life to a fentanyl overdose. I created this podcast to be a resource, guide, and source of encouragement and hope as you go through this challenging season in life. I've been there in the sleepless nights, cried the tears, and know how scary it is. The good news is you don't have to do this alone. You have found an understanding and supportive place to come when things get tough, and I am so glad you're here. Now, let's get into today's episode. But first, this episode is supported by The Stream. You might be listening to this podcast and wondering to yourself, who else is dealing with the kinds of things I am? Well, there are thousands of moms just like you who are struggling to help their kids and who want to have a more positive, personal, and supportive place to connect with other moms who get it. The Stream is an online pay-what-you-can membership where moms who have kids struggling with substance use focus on their own health, wellness, and sanity with no judgment and no distraction because it's not on Facebook. We have daily conversations, weekly events, a book club, yoga classes, workshops, and even a laugh here and there. Being a member of the stream gives you an even deeper connection beyond the podcast, where you get to interact with amazing moms and me every day. So if you'd like to hang out with us after the episodes, you can learn more and join us at brendazane.com forward slash the stream. The first two weeks are always free, then you pay whatever you can. I would truly love to see you there. Hello, friends. Thanks for being here today and for supporting this podcast and for making the effort to learn more about teens and young adults and substance use. It's a difficult topic. So if you're listening, I just want to recognize that and commend you for doing the hard work. I have a real treat for you today. I was fortunate enough to be invited to the screening of a new documentary that has just launched on Amazon Prime and Apple TV called Uprooting Addiction. It's different from other documentaries that I've seen on addiction because there aren't any horrific, traumatizing scenes of overdoses or shooting up, which is really refreshing. The film features six people with really different cultural and socioeconomical backgrounds, and it explores the childhood traumas that are at the root of their addiction. And if you're a parent who is questioning and wondering why your son or daughter is struggling with substance use, you are going to want to listen to this entire episode. You'll find so much of what my guests share to be insightful and might offer you a new perspective on what's happening in your family. You'll hear how the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, or what's called in the film the ACEs Study, 
It analyzes the correlation between 10 types of childhood trauma and long-term health outcomes, and it reveals a causal relationship between the two. It is so, so fascinating, and it's really important to know about. My guests are Hope Payson, who is a licensed clinical social worker and the co-producer of the film, Daryl McGraw, who is one of the participants in the film, and Hannah Van Regenmorder, who is the volunteer administrator for Eleanor Health Foundation, who is a supporter of the film. All of their contact information and the resources, details about the film and the ACEs study will be in the show notes, which are always at my website, brendazane.com forward slash podcast. So now I want to let you listen in to this incredibly fascinating and very, very important episode. Welcome to Hope Stream. Hope, Daryl, it is so fun to talk with you now after seeing the movie. Thanks for taking the time to be here and sharing your experiences with parents. And thanks, Hannah, for your help in making this all happen and for the work that you do with Eleanor Health Foundation to support the film. I appreciate all of you being here. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. So I watched this film when you were doing a screening, I believe it was in February, I could be wrong, because time's a little bit of a blur, as as we all know right now. Um, but when I saw this film, it just, it was so impactful to me, because you're really talking about the roots of why people struggle with substances. And so it was just, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about the symptoms and trying to fix the the symptoms that are going on. And we spend less time talking about, well, why are we in this predicament in the first place? So that was my initial interest. And so I tracked you all down and <laughs> you're very kind to um, agree to, to talk with me today. So Hope, maybe we can start with you and sort of just introduce yourself and what your role was in the film and how you got involved in all of this. Sure. Um, so my name is Hope Payson and I'm a clinical social worker and an addiction counselor. Um, and <clears throat> the film started as an idea um, because fentanyl was really, this is about four or five years ago, and we were talking about fentanyl a lot. And there was a lot of emphasis on the strength of the drug and the access to the drug and maybe stopping access to the drug. And after being in the field for years and also having some personal experiences with addiction and recovery, I felt like we were missing a great opportunity and I felt like trying to control a substance really wasn't the answer. It would be better to look at why people want the substance because if people don't want it anymore, um, then everybody who's trying to sell it is going to go out of business rather than trying to control it. So it started with that idea. I'd also been studying the adverse childhood experiences study and looking at the connection between pain uh, neglect and trauma and vulnerability to addiction. I was really kind of blown away by the statistics. Um, so it was this idea, how can we show the general public? Because I knew that as a person um, in the field, I knew about the connection between trauma and addiction, but I didn't think it was translating well to the public. And how could we make a movie or something, some way of portraying this? And at first it was just an idea to make a film clip for a conference presentation and it kind of blew up. So I looked around um, 
and uh, found a film um, producer who was willing to meet with me, Tori Jadow, and explain the idea and set up this retreat, a bunch of people in recovery, which is how I met Daryl McGraw. Um, people volunteered their time and stories. And after a day of filming the retreat for something small, um, Tori said, I think this is a documentary. And so it kind of blew up from there. It became a film to be used as a grassroots way of educating the general public. But it became more than that. Um, the film people became like a family. Um, we um, partnered with many communities in showing the film. Um, I had lost a brother um, to untreated trauma and addiction. So it really helped heal something for me. And I didn't even realize until we were into the film how much that mm -hmm. was a part of it for me. Um, as like a gift back um, to him and for other families like mine that were suffering. Wow. So that's kind of what happened is that I just, I sent out an email and said, does anybody know a filmmaker? And somebody did. And then she met with me and then she went for the ride. And then I sent another email out who wants to blow all their confidentiality, right. share all their trauma <laughs> with somebody you don't even know on film. And Cheryl, and then Daryl shows up at my door and 12 wow, other people. That's you know, incredible. So, yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey. And it became a film, a documentary. I'm a social worker. Like, I don't know anything about filmmaking. This is not the direction not you were thing, thinking you would go in. You know? No, I wasn't realizing I'd be writing grants and raising money. And, um, but Tori knew about the film world and she was really open to the topic. And then Edie uh, Schechter joined us as uh, someone to help us with the business aspect of the film, which I had no idea what, what it would be like. So, and here we are, we're about to be released. Um, the film will be available on Apple TV and Amazon um, in four days. You're so, kidding. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. I didn't yeah, even know. I was going to ask you about the timing. Well, get yeah. ready, get your pens out for autographs because it's going to be huge. <laughs> but it's been a journey and it's been a lot of learning and uh, so many people's stories and trying to edit it down and be hopeful and helpful to families yeah. and people struggling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and I, when I watched it, what struck me was, and I almost didn't actually go to the screening because being the mom of somebody who's been through this and so much, it's just so traumatic. Um, I can get really triggered, you know, by watching these films. And so I almost didn't. And then I did. And what I really loved was it wasn't all about watching people shoot up and it wasn't this triggering seeing all these overdoses. And I'm wondering how you and why you decided to steer away from that direction, because that seems to be what we keep seeing over and over and over in all these films and documentaries is, kind of the the really ugly, scary side of it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for some reason, that is what gets publicized the most. But <sighs> what I've seen in recovery is the incredible um, transformational process um, of people um, getting better. We purposely did not show that. We felt like that has been shown. And actually, I'm not sure how productive it is. I think everybody who is any... Um, contact with the media knows what a problem we're having and understands addiction, that it's painful and awful and hard to look at. But we wanted to show the heart of it. These are human beings. These are right. our brothers and sisters. These are our children. These are our neighbors and friends. These are real people that we really like and we care about them. And therefore, we want to make treatment available to them and we want to have compassion toward them. So we don't need to show the pain, um, although the pain is in there. People talk about it. 
Um, but we wanted to show the hope and, um, and the possibility of recovery. And we wanted to lead um, policymakers and people in the community to have enough compassion to change the treatment systems and make things available to families and um, people struggling. That's yeah, that's amazing. I I was just so amazed at how you you really did tap into that compassion piece without showing all of the the horrific scenes. Um, so that was amazing. So Daryl, you you hear that this is going on, and how how did you think? Well, I'm just going to put everything out there <laughs> on this film. I mean, did that? Did you have to think about it, or how how did you approach it? Not, not really. Hope and I joke about this a lot. Um, some lady said she was having, a, she was making a film, and I was like, "What kind of film are you making?" So I went over there. I was like interested to find out. Like she was making a film, but we kind of like joke about it, like here and just in our thing, because like somebody puts out that they're making a movie, and you're like, you know, it was actually just like filming, like you know, your your trauma and talking about trauma, and I just kind of went on a whim, but the conversation interests me. And to be truly honest, I don't think I knew what that I was impacted by trauma until we were in the room and we started really talking. And the more and more I got to know Hope, the more and more I understood how my trauma actually played a role in my life. Like I've been telling my story for years, and um, but not really understanding how the two were related, not understanding like, you know, what happened to me at six years old with my father leaving our house, which was a huge impact to me, how it affected my life going on. And like many times I talk about the ripple effect and I talk about how things, you know, happen. And we, and as an adult, and as we get older, we, we realize that many things have correlation, but I didn't really never, no one even told me how growing up and witnessing violence and seeing all these things happen in my community, how not addressing it would play out later with me reaching out for a substance, you know, not, not even talking about it impacting me, just seeing it, witnessing it, moving through life, but later on needing something to medicate to, you know, to feel better about like the, I think a lot like about insecurities and things that I felt like that not having a dad was, was made me feel insecure, made me feel less than, right. So I went through like feeling like that for a long time. And, you know, and I did other things that made me not feel good about myself, made me feel less than. So I think that when, when you know, we, we meet other people who, who are, um, um, ended up in similar situations as myself, they, if they really peel the onion back, you'll start to see the similar things that they felt. They didn't feel whole. They felt less than. They didn't feel, you know, they were hopeless. Um, and I think that that's what we were seeking and or just trying to numb that feeling. And then when you really get down to it, you really um, find out that trauma played a major role in that. Even my friends who have mental health um, um, issues, they find out that it really stems from trauma more so than anything else. Like when they really go back and start to look back, they're like, wow, you know what? It was that time that, you know, I was raped or it was a time that, you know, you know, and a lot of, even when I talk to parents, things happen to their children, either that they didn't know about or they knew about, but thought he didn't, you know, he never said anything. So we just, when we moved on, well, that was the major, and that was the major reason why they were using. Right. So you, 
so you had already been living in sobriety when this film happened. Is that is that right? Do I have the timing right on that? Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been living a, a substance free life now since May seventh, two thousand seven. So um, woohoo! Yeah, Congratulations! I, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I also that was the last time that I was in the back of the police car. So for that's me, that's a bonus. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I got to say that because my story has criminal is as you know, the criminal justice system played a major role through my um, active use. Right, mm-hmm. they basically went hand in hand. And when I when I removed the substance from my life, I kind of removed going to prison from my life as well. So that's a major thing for me. And I, you know, when I, when I got out of prison, the two, there was only two things that I really wanted to do, not use drugs and stay out of jail. Everything else is a bonus. And, you know, I got to meet Hope and I've done some amazing, I've accomplished some amazing things and I had some amazing opportunities, but really for me, it would have been as to not use drugs and stay out of prison. Unfortunately, I've been back to prison a million times now because I go in there and I speak and I, and I work <laughs> But you walk in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did tell the guys I'll be back when it'd be through the front door. Yes, yes. I love that. Wow. So that's really interesting. But I think it's so common that people are really struggling with substances and they know that things, you know, they know that life hasn't necessarily been great, but they're not making that connection to the trauma. And I think you're right. What you said is it could be something that doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be as horrific as a rape or being, you know, coming back from a war. There can be things, especially when you're talking about younger kids. And I would love to to ask you more about your, what you mm-hmm. talked about your dad when you were six, that to an adult, to a parent might not seem like a trauma. Right. And then the kids growing up and they're hitting that 13, 14, 15 and starting to reach out for substances and it's just not making sense. There's like, there's not a connection going on in the mind of the parent. And, and you said like you hadn't even made the connection as a, as a person who was struggling, you know, and you talked in the film about growing up around violence and that things were kind of solved with violence. How do you think that really, if you had known at the time a little bit more about this kind of this, the roots and the the trauma, do you think that would have made a difference? Oh, 100%. This is why we, we strongly talk about ACEs so heavily, right? If somebody knew about ACEs and all those adults and professionals that I interacted with, even in a correction facility, no one addressed the trauma. No one addressed, like, the things that happened in our projects with people being killed and, and blood on the wall. No one ever came and asked us, hey, how are you doing with that? Even our parents didn't have, we didn't, certain things that happened, we didn't even talk about it. So these things were happening and no one was addressing it. We never addressed it. And, you know, it's even like even being a black person in this country, slavery, we never healed from slavery, right? Right. There's never been an opportunity to heal. So here's this trauma that's just growing and things are, and and then it's more and more happening more stuff is happening you go to prison you're re-traumatized you go in a traumatized person you're more trauma inside and then you're just back out into this world and really not understanding how it really plays out the other point is that how it affected me doesn't necessarily mean it's going to affect everybody my brother grew up in the same household at his experience he didn't go to prison it wasn't that wasn't you know 
And maybe his traumas or, you know, maybe that has, it acts out in a different way for him. I know there are several people that we grew up in a building where there were 110 families. So we all experienced that violence and stuff, but different people reacted. It, it, it showed up differently, you know, in their lives. So, but to answer your question, I think that, you know, if there was someone, if there were social workers, if they were in school, if they were like early that identify like, okay, so we did the ACEs thing. We're seeing that this kid has the potential to, you know, he's had some traumas in his life that can later on play out as an adult. So maybe we should address these issues early. Like someone talked to me about my dad and, and how it affected me. Even my mom, she never said, Hey, how you doing with this? You know, mm-hmm. they decided to break up and they, he went his way. But it was never a discussion. Even to this day, we never talked about how that affected me. And, you know, as a person with an addiction background, um, I think that's when at an early age of six, I think that's when I felt the most powerless because I couldn't stop him from leaving. Mm. It's incredible how much we don't talk about (laughs) You know, as families, it is really, truly incredible. And you mentioned the ACEs study, and I don't know if you or or Hope want to just maybe tell people, because I think a lot of people have never heard of this. I know to to you, maybe in in the um, in the field of addiction and and treatment, that it's it's probably kind of a basic one hundred and one. But maybe you can talk about what that is. And then how we could potentially use that to help people who are struggling. Well, the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is um, it's a huge pivotal study where people <clears throat> were asked just ten questions, you know, about um, things that happened to them before the age of eighteen. And the higher your score was, it's not just vulnerability to addiction, but that is really important to us. But it's also vulnerability to uh, medical issues. Um, simple things like heart conditions and um, cholesterol and high blood pressure, that there's an increased vulnerability to illness um, grow, if you had this stress growing up. And what is interesting to me about it is this study has been around for a while. The general public is not really that aware of it. Um, everybody in the field is aware of it. Um, and it's not hit places. Like for me, when I go to the doctor, I get my blood analyzed, you know, I get my blood pressure taken and they should do the ACE questions with me because if they did, I have an ACE score of six and my doctor should be saying to me, Hey, hope, no, no judgment. Cause it's not your fault. You had these childhood experiences, but this means that you have some vulnerability to some medical issues and we need to keep an eye on what we give you as a prescription because your um, vulnerability to addiction is like 500% more than the person who has no ACE score or a low ACE score. So that's, I mean, one thing, one thing is, could we just make it normal? Like, I don't know why the the topic of pain is so taboo in our culture, but it seems to be something we avoid, you know, and asking and then providing help like um, you're talking about when children are younger, but also, you know, we are, there's big traumas and there's a lot of other things that it can, can affect children that cause pain that parents may not be aware of. There are um, things that happen with children where they don't tell their parents, you know, and the parents know something's wrong, but they can't put their finger on what it is. Um, There's things like learning disabilities, um, early medical issues, um, any kind of difference. Children so much want to fit in. So any kind of painful experience, you know, so um, we're very careful in the film not to blame families. Um, 
for addiction, because we know that it comes from pain from many sources. And many of the people um, who raise children, you know, um, raise children, or all the people who raise children love their children, you know, and don't want them to be addicted, but yet um, have missed the vulnerabilities because it's not something that's ever talked about. Their pediatricians don't ask. The pediatrician doesn't say, hey, you guys just went through a divorce. It might be a good idea for everybody to get a little counseling because um, even though your child says they're okay, it might be affecting them. Well, it's when you, when you said that um, about going to the doctor, it just reminded me of, you know, when, when you go to the doctor, what they show you is the little smiley face chart. And they say on a scale of one to 10, how, how in pain are you or what's your pain level? It seems like we should replace that with the ACEs study and say, you know, maybe it's not today's physical pain, but where are you on this pain scale? seems like it would be a lot more appropriate. Well, if you ask that question, you have to be prepared to have an answer. And that is the biggest problem that we have is that um, physicians in my area are happy to ask, but they said, Hope, when people tell me they have a six or seven, then what do I do? Because we don't have enough care available to meet the need, the incredible amount of need there is when people do say they're in pain and admit it. So that's the cultural, um, you know, system issue, you know, is can we acknowledge pain? And then are we going to invest in treatment for that pain? So that when the doctor asks the question, they say, hey, good, because I've got somebody within the practice that you can go talk to right now. We're going to get you hooked up with a counselor who understands um, your pain. Right. Right. Versus here's a prescription for some, which isn't necessarily bad. That's not, it's not that that's bad, but it seems like in absence of some of these other services, sometimes we can just default to a medication that can have an impact today um, versus doing the long work, um, the hard work that takes a longer time. I just, I remember during, after the film, you were doing a Q and A Q&A panel, and I think it was um, Dr. Nzinga Harrison that said anything over a four is means you basically had a nuclear childhood, and that just really stuck with me to think that it's so so important to understand this whole this whole thing. Yeah, I think that um, sometimes um, I think it's like parents too, like you know, no, no, my mom, love her to death. I, I, I challenge some of her punishment techniques. I, I would definitely still debating on calling the police on her from time to time. Our parents did what they did the best that they could with what the information that they had. And it's just interesting, like, you know, some of the things like, you know, just like being home alone, she thought that I could handle that, which obviously it made me a, an adult, which was able to be, you know, but at the time, and I think it, it has manifested itself as, as some abandonment issues, right? right. For me, and, and the struggling of being alone versus, you know, being this kid that can take care of himself. So I think that it just plays out in many different ways. And and I don't think it I don't think it says anything negative about the parent because they did what they could do. You know, my, my mom couldn't afford a babysitter at the time, right? But right how it played out and how it showed up in life later on abandonment issues and separation anxiety and all these things that, you know, I know I experienced through my life, like, were they related? You know, I am not the clinician here. I'm the person that, you know, uh, um, right. So I, but I, but I do think about those things and I think about how, um, you know, I'm always thinking about how do we get here? How did we get here? How did, how did I get 
to this place. Like, you know, and, and even where we are today, like where I am with myself today, I mean, like, I'm super proud of myself and I'm super like, I have the, my, my own theme song going in my head. Like I'm my biggest cheerleader, which yeah. it takes time to get to that point and, and, and trying to help others who are going through this process to be that too. You know, we watch so many families suffer and moms can't figure out what happened or how did, like, I don't get it. Well, you know, you know, and I think that we, we talk, Hope and I talk about this all the time. It's about asking the right questions and stop saying what's wrong with people and asking them, you know, what happened, right? If we start asking them what happened, right? You're going to, even with your own kids, like what happened? Like, what was the shift? What was the, you know, let's, let's, you know, even my friends, when I'm working with somebody who recently relapsed, I said, let's play it back. Let's walk this back. You were fine. You had your job. You were doing this. Da, 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 da. What happened? Because it wasn't like a light switch. So you had to like, what did the thoughts? Then you went and cop because there's a lot that goes into getting high. It's not just right. You know what I mean, so let's walk this back and then figure out when did you decide that this is what you were going to do, you know, and especially for my friends that are in a long-term recovery who end up with relapse and they'll say, well, you know what? I got paid and I was feeling really great. Or I got into this argument with my mom or, you know, it was Thanksgiving. They started bringing up the TV I stole 10 years ago. My oh. sister's still talking <laughs> about her casserole and her kids right. and, you know, and so we have so all this unfinished stuff sometimes in families that trigger use or work triggers use. There's so many reasons to use, right? I mean, I use yeah. because it was sunny. I use because it was raining. But when I really started to look at um, my addiction issues and behavior, what were those triggers and what was going on? Like, you know, hope makes me like I love being, you know, friends with hope because I think a little bit further back than I normally would, right? Like it wasn't just because it was nice outside. Well, I started thinking like, you know, maybe I'm not good enough for this job. I got this job, but maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm second guessing, you know what I mean? And if Mm -hmm. you stay in that long enough, because it's comfortable feeling uncertain and and it's come that, that traumatized place is, is so familiar that it's comfortable. So it's easy to go there than to, to, than to dug it out and try to be somewhere else. It's almost scary to be in this life. Like it's easier to go back to using and, and running from the police and all of that stuff because you know it because you've done it so long. This like normal life here is scary. So you kind of need friends and you need a network to support you through that. Wow. There's so much in there. That, <laughs> so many questions, but one um, is the I was really interested, Hope, in, in the metaphor that you used of the tree. And if that's something that you use in your practice, if that's something that's helpful, because I'm just trying to imagine the the conversation of either how could a parent start to talk about this with their kids, or if you know, if there are other therapists or practitioners listening, how can you use that? Um, and and how did you d- decide on the metaphor of this tree to to go through this with these folks? Well, I think it was the idea of roots and the idea of um, what is seen and what's not seen. So what's mm-hmm. above ground, you know, um, was fentanyl and how powerful it was. 
and um, the pain and uh, the things, the dramatic uh, episodes of what you see when somebody has a drug problem or an alcohol problem. What's not seen and what feeds the tree and starts it all off is the ground that it grows from. And so um, I started to think as a social worker, because I was a grassroots social worker before clinical, was what its systems need to change so that there's not so much pain. So it's very nice to usher individuals into individual recovery. I love that. Um, but I was a little more concerned about the systemic issues that push it to begin with um, and suspect that if we didn't address them, then when fentanyl's gone, there's going to be something else because it was right. you know, cocaine and it, it was crack. It was alcohol. Now it's fentanyl. It's going to be something else because as long as people are in pain, will always be chasing and trying to fix the problem from the top of the tree. So to me, um, the tree metaphor seemed like the best. It's grounded, it's rooted, and the trouble starts in the bottom. And so um, to stop, you know, Daryl and I present together all the time. So we go back and forth between the tree and the iceberg. We like the iceberg too. You know, where you know, <laughs> yes. icebergs floating by and everybody's looking at the top of the iceberg and there's this gigantic piece of ice underneath it below the water. And he and I talk about all those factors, you know, systemic racism, um, how we treat people of different incomes and backgrounds, um, how what we do um, when we incarcerate people with addiction issues and pain and never offer them treatment, you know. Um, so there's yeah. some big things. And then there are little things, you know. So um, when we present, I often bring out the tree and show it because it's to me a visual representation and something that people can understand. And also that it's not just one thing, that it's roots. So more than one thing that contribute to a big problem. And that if you have a big problem, and we've had a big problem with addiction for decades, this is nothing new, decades. Um, and the reason is it's got multiple roots. And until as a culture, we're willing to look at them and stare them down, it's, we're going to struggle with this. And so the yeah. tree just made sense to me, but I do love the iceberg too, but um, no. both. So we love them both. I love them both too, right? <laughs> and it's funny because the tree, you see the tree, and that's what you see. And and in this country and, and around, as people judge everybody but what, what they see on the tree. They see that. That's the visual, right? So that's what you see. But if once you understand the roots, you understand the person. And when I talk to police officers or corrections officers, social workers, whoever, I'm like, if you check out these roots, you understand how that person is sitting before you today. You understand, like, you almost appreciate the person that's 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 in recovery or struggling through because look at those roots. Look where they came from. Look what they grew out of, right? If you look at our roots, that's a whole different game. But everybody's so quick. And, and, and unfortunately, systems only want to work on the top of the tree. They only want to like trim the leaves. They only want to address the, it's easy to send someone to treatment or give them medication or do that, but they don't want to get to the low, the roots and fix the actual problems. They don't want to address yeah. that. It's easier to fix the top. Dealing with the roots takes time right. and it takes probably a level of expertise that we just don't have in this country enough of um, enough funding for enough people trained enough people willing to to sit in that like you said daryl just to sit there with that and ask the questions i'm curious how you because i know you do so much work in the community how do you start to have this conversation so let's say you're you're talking with somebody who 
is still actively using and you want to have them start to understand this idea of the trauma and the roots. Um, do you just spring that on them or how I'm just thinking of the parents who might be wanting to bring this up with their kids. What are some ways that you have that conversation with people so that they, they understand it and, and can start to go, Hmm, actually, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. So, so I think that we always build for me, it's always about building that foundation of relationships, right? And trust is key. We can't have those conversations until we trust the individual and we build that relationship. And then once we start mm-hmm. to build that bridge, right? So you trust me, even if you're a parent, like just because you're my parent doesn't necessarily mean I trust you enough to tell you some of my stuff, right? Like, you know, I, mm-hmm. I love the relationship that I see with even my own daughters and their mom. They'll tell their mom stuff that they won't tell me. I, I you know, and some of the stuff as a, as a guy, I probably don't want to know, right? Especially as your dad, I don't want to know. But, but there's that trust factor, right? So when I'm working with people, you know, we build that relationship or that trust. And then once we do that, then we're able to start to really address like, you know, well, so what do you think? Like, you know, understanding that some of this stuff is not your stuff. You know, my dad's stuff wasn't my stuff, but I carried it around for 30 years. Right. Mm. So understanding that every, all this isn't your stuff. Um, and let's talk about some of the stuff that, you know, where'd you go? Like, where'd you come from? Like, where you know, especially guys that are coming out of jail, like, where'd you come from? Okay. And because I've been doing this work a long time, especially in my state, I know certain prisons, I know how they run and I know what they're like different levels. So I understand that. So we talk about that and then we really just get into it. And you know what I've noticed, especially with men, because I work mostly with men, um, no one's shy to share their story. They want to talk about it, but no one's asking. No one's asking. Yeah. No one. No one's giving them because I've done men's trauma groups in prison. Like in week two, we were talking about sexual molestation with guys with tear tattoos and like, and there was no shame. Like they were like, I was molested when I was seven, and I'm like, whoa, bro, mm-hmm. this is week two. Okay, like we're ready, right? Like you know, but let's go. Yeah, like you know, and I didn't think it would be that. But the more we start to talk and we start to see that, you know, there's this there's this thing that we think that we're unique, right? And we realize that we're not so unique. There's so many of us that have these stories. Like, you know, when I started telling my story about my dad, now many people came up to me and were like, wow, that was me. You know, um, and from all different walks of life, you know, I tell a piece of my story about my dad being a dollar dad, throwing dollars at everything. I said dollars, not hundreds. Dollars, right? He threw dollars at everything. Yeah. I met a woman, um, white female, who came from a very wealthy family. And she came up to me. She's like, I want to tell you something. And I was like, well, she said, your dad was like my dad. He never listened. He just threw money at me. And I was like, wow. So here's this connection I have with her that I didn't come from two different spectrums. But when I told that story, it resonated with her. And, And I think that's what we do with the film. That's what we do when we're talking to people. We just want to make connections and resonate with them to say, like, you're not alone in this. You're not unique. This stuff happens to a lot of people. It has no reflection on your family. It just happens. But there is a way to, you can get through it. And why do we say that? Because there's 25 million people in this country that are in recovery that that have been through it. And anytime someone identifies 
as a person in recovery, that means they've been through something. You know, that means mm-hmm. not only them have they been through something, they got through it and they're here to talk about it today. So it, it's a it's a it's a bad literally a badge of honor. Oh, it so is. That's so true. Was that a goal for you, Hope, in, in creating the film to not just educate the public, but also more people in the field of treating addiction to understand the ACEs study and to understand trauma and um, sort of what, what was your biggest goal when you, when you thought about, let's get this out into the world? <clears throat> Maybe both. Um, the field was just starting to look at this about the connection um, and it became more, it was becoming more and more popular. So some of it was, I do uh, trauma therapy. And so I wanted people in trauma therapy to be more interested and invested in helping people with addiction. So um, there's in the trauma field and in the treatment field, people can be a little leery of people with addiction. They're afraid of some of their behaviors. They're afraid of their impulsivity. Um, And I wanted people to look at it um, as a trauma symptom. So you're not afraid when a person has a flashback, you're okay with working with trauma, uh, other trauma symptoms. So looking at um, addiction as perhaps a symptom of pain. So some of the, uh, the film initially was for that, to just start that conversation within our own field. And, you know, when you start something like this, I didn't know this, but when you start a film project, we didn't have like a written out um, agenda. We just started because it was just one of those things. It's just people showed up at my house. We got some food out. We unplugged the refrigerator. We got things rolling <laughs> and we're like, let's see what happens. And there was a million possible directions we could have gone. Just every single person in that film has a story that could be its own film. You know, so it's just, and then we realized, no, we're talking yeah. about pain. And we're talking about the ACEs. And we're going to stay here because we really um, wanted to veer off and talk a little bit about mass incarceration and some of the other specific routes. And we just decided, no, let's stay here. This is enough for now. And let's um, also infuse compassion in. So, um, and make it a film that yeah. can be used for people in the field, for people in recovery, you know, for families. I imagine yeah. it will start many a conversation in families. I'm hoping it will at least. I think it's a great, it could be a great springboard just if you're having a hard time, you know, if you know that you need to have some of these conversations in your family or or with somebody, it could be a really great opener to that to say, hey, let's watch this and then be able to open up about some of that. So I know, um, Daryl, you had said in the film that once you were able to walk away or once that once you really understood the trauma that you were able to walk away from the drugs without looking back. And I thought that was a pretty strong statement like that. You don't hear that very often. Like I just walked away from the drugs and I don't look back. Can you just talk a little bit more about what that is? I think that's a really, really interesting statement. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was real too, because you know what, I think that, you know, I was on autopilot for so many years of my life, right. Not really understanding why I was using, I was just using, why was I cycling through all these different cycles? And then once I started to like, for me, you know, I found purpose when I was in prison. Um, but real, like, you know, really, really realizing that, you know, um, what had happened to me, you know, happened to me not on my own accord, like, you know, my dad, you know, dad leaving, that being a big trauma, big T for me, uh, we talk about big T's and little T's. Yeah. Once I thought that that, I think that that piece of it 
I held as an identity or a flaw. And I was able to see that that wasn't, that wasn't me. That's not who I am, you know? And, you know, today I'm a dad and I'm a present, I'm a, I'm a present dad. Like, you know, my kids know who their dad is and I'm not throwing dollars at anything because I don't have dollars to give them. I will hug you. I will hug you. <laughs> hugs, will free hugs. You, right. Free hugs. And I will show you how to make a dollar if you go clean the yard or something. Right. Um, <laughs> But I think that, you know, it was a statement for me that, you know, the drugs played such a major role in my life. And I I think that all of us people that um, struggle with addictions um, know that we're better, know that we're, we're, we're worth. I think that that's that war in my head. I knew I was a better person, but I didn't know how to get to that. And I didn't know what was keeping me from that. And that, you know, that piece of feeling less than because of, for whatever reason, I wasn't good enough. And then one day, you know, when I identified the father thing and sort of identified these trauma things, I said, I am good now. I'm way good. I'm so good that, you know, I don't need that anymore. I don't need that to support me. Mm. Kind of like Linus, I'm dating myself now. Linus with the security blanket. The drugs, yes. <laughs> the drugs were that, right? Yeah. And then I realized that I didn't need that blanket anymore. You know, I'm funny without drugs. I'm funny without this. And I'm not this. And I don't need that. No, are all my dates good? No, but they're a lot better without substances in them. That's that's really interesting to to think about that. Just kind of the enlightenment of oh, okay. Now I can see how it would just start to fall into place and make sense. Um, and that the sense of freedom must be just amazing, right? Because I had blamed myself for so long about things that had nothing to do with me. Right. And I think that we yeah. do life like that. We're blaming ourselves for things that number one, we had no control over. Right. You know, I think about many of my friends who have told me that they experienced molestation, no control over, had no, they couldn't control it. So we blame ourselves for things that we had no control over. And then we carry that. And that's a lot, right. You know, I'm feeling yeah. less than think about it. I'm feeling less than for, because of something that had nothing to do with that I had no control over. I'm feeling like less than a person because someone else left their family or someone else did something to me as a child, you know, that had nothing to do with me. Like, why am I feeling that that person should feel that I shouldn't feel that. And when we can get to a place like that, and I feel like for me, that's a place of wholeness. Once we can get to a place of that, and then there's the opportunity to work on ourselves but I would be remiss to say that, you know, it, ha- it happens in stages because I had to, I was incarcerated, so I wasn't using. So I needed the abstinence to start to think clearly. And then I needed the right material to be able to start to eat something different. I started to take in, you know, I was reading, I was doing all this stuff. So I had an opportunity to take in some different information and it mm-hmm. all just started to fall into place. I can't say if I stayed in the community and I was using and I was still around all these friends would I've had this same awakening. I don't see that happening because I never gave myself enough time once again to heal. That's I'm glad that you said that because, you know, I work with a lot of parents and they often will try to avoid their kids going to jail. Um, whether they bail them out or whatever it is that they do, you know, they really try to prevent that from happening. That's kind of this like worst case scenario. And my son spent some time in jail and he had quite a few epiphanies in jail. And so I think not that you want your child to end up there, but 
I think you're right. There can be these periods of time where maybe that was a blessing in disguise to give you your brain space away from substances to have you learn some tools. So I'm just, I'm glad that you said that because I think that's a, a perspective that sometimes people don't think about. Oh, don't get me wrong. Jeff sucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it does. Yes. Though, you know, I West Wing 25 cell. I'll never forget. I had a cell, a single cell by myself and I had an opportunity to finally think, you know, and I always tell brothers and sisters who, who are in prison, I'm like, look at, you know, when we were kids, we used to have this, this, you would say time out. I got to tie my sneaker time out, you know, whatever. Right. It was an opportunity for me to take a time out from life and actually, you know, um, to do some work on myself. And, you know, lately, you know, before, before COVID, we were really teaching the guys how to look at Maslow's theories and equate it to their current situation. You know, you guys have food, shelter, all of that stuff, right? And you're feeling pretty safe, right? So let's start to work on some relationships. Let's work on self-actualization. Let's work on these things because all these other needs are being met. And when that happened, you could just watch their brains go, wow, because you don't have to worry about these other things right now. You don't have to worry about where you're going to eat. You don't have to worry about, if are you safe? You don't have to worry about these things. So it gave me an opportunity to work on self-actualization, relationships. Who do you want to be? Like for so long, many of us are walking around, even as adults, we don't even know who we want to be, who, who we are, much less who we want to be. I would love to ask you both, and then Hannah, I'm going to ask some questions of you. If I could give you a billboard in Times Square to say anything that you want about either addiction, about treatment, about trauma, about this film, um, what would you put on your billboard? And either one of you can go first, Hope or Daryl. I don't know, Daryl. It's going to see if they're going to be the same. (sighs) I think I'd say recovery is possible. I think that, and I mean in a broad sense, not just from addiction, but from pain, but it's possible. Uh, yeah, you know what? I was thinking you stole that. Okay, I'll, I'll let you have that one. Hope I would say for me, recovery is a journey, right? Because it's not, it's just so, it's such a cool journey, man. Like I envision myself with this guy with this, okay, I'm going to date myself again, right? So I'm the guy with the stick with the handkerchief on it and I'm walking. And on this journey, I meet people like Hope and Hannah and Brenda and all these people, right? Sometimes you meet them, they join you, and they may come a few miles. They may come to this, but we keep meeting all these different cool people on the journey. And that's what recovery gave me, whereas addiction was so dark and lonely that it was just like, even in a world where there's millions of people, I felt so alone. But recovery is this journey that you could go anywhere and, man, and meet some wonderful people. I met some so many cool people that I just think that, you know, man, what a, what a gift. And if, and if you fall on that journey, there's people that are going to pick you up. If you go somewhere else, you could say, hey, I'm looking for my people. I'm looking for my tribe and they're everywhere. So good. Well, Hannah, I want to thank you in particular because you connected me with these amazing people and you are with Eleanor Health Foundation. I would love to learn more about what that is, how you became involved, and then also what was your response to this film? Oh, gosh. I was thinking of your billboard question just now to Daryl. Yes. Well, 
And I'm going to ask you the same question. So well, if I were to put something on Times Square, um, I think it'd be something like an amazing life is possible and seek recovery, um, something like that. Or one of the statistics, so most people who try to recover succeed. Really? And that's absolutely over 50% of people successfully recover. I can send you the stats. I if you would want. love yeah. that. That's such good. You know, I've always wondered about that statistic. And I've always wondered, how would you ever get a statistic like that? So that's fascinating. And one of the, the things that I love so much about this film is, is the hope in it and, yeah. and the hope of the recovery. And, you know, it, it, it's just so vital for those of us who are in recovery ourselves, who are love people in recovery or who've lost people. Um, I have lost people who have not made it. You know, I've yeah. used Narcan with loved ones and seen it work for that day, but then not later. And mm-hmm. it's um, for those that are left and then for also those who are parents. Um, it's, it's a terrifying journey. And I've been a, a parent um, of uh, and guardian of teens as well. And I know some of your, your journey, Brenda, I found so inspiring. And I wanted to speak that up as well. Um, just thank you for your journey and for all the work that that you've done, um, giving hope to others. Yeah, it's so important because I think you see, and, and I was thinking this and watching the film too, that you look at some of the things that have happened to people are so tragic. And they, you know, like Hope said, you could make a film about every single one of them. And then to see that you can overcome that and that you can find recovery because as parents, I know when you're in the thick of it, and, you know, your kid is is out there using or they're just refusing treatment and refusing, you know, any help. It can just seem so hopeless, like, oh, my gosh, this kid is not going to make it. So I agree. You've got to hear those stories and see people like Daryl and people like, you know, Hope and like all of everybody in the film, I think, um, just so perfectly represents the fact that stuff happens really bad stuff happens and then good stuff can happen too. And I love your, your shame-free approach on your podcast. I love the shame-free approach that Hope and Tori and Daryl took in developing this film. Yes. And uh, addiction is something that affects all of us um, in, in our country. It's, it's a cultural um, answer to pain and grief and trauma. Yeah. Um, our kids and sometimes our parents and other folks, um, is part of, of their journey and being able to walk in an unjudgmental way um, is so important. Yes, it is. So how how did Eleanor Health Foundation become involved with this? And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work that you do. So Eleanor Health Foundation is a brand new nonprofit that is aims to be a resource to increase equity with access to recovery. So we provide treatment scholarships for outpatient care um, for folks with addiction. We also provide recovery help scholarships. So if somebody's in recovery, but in early stages where they don't have a lot of income or resources set up yet, and they have a barrier, um, let's say your tire blows and you've been in recovery three months and your job is as a delivery person, how do you pay for that tire? You're still paying court fees, everything's super tight. 
So that's an example of one things we've we've helped out. So if you can document you're in treatment and get signed off by your case manager or therapist or doctor, um, we can help in small ways as well to help people not have those road bumps, take them over the edge um, because there's so, you know, Cyril said earlier, like sometimes, you know, it was high because it was sunny. Sometimes it was rainy. Right. But really trying to recover, you know, a, a nail in your tire can, that's the end of your job. That's the end of, oh, then your, then your girlfriend's going to be mad at you. And then you don't, can't have Christmas presents for the kids. Um, he was able to work that next weekend and bought Christmas presents for the kids himself instead of having to do an angel tree. And he was so proud. He sent me a picture of those presents he um, bought himself. And that was well worth, you know, the $76 tire from Discount Tire that we were able to cover. So, so awesome. And I will put a link in the show notes to all of this good stuff that we're talking about. And Hope, you said that the, what is the release date on, on Apple and Amazon? Um, so the release date is on um, the 6th okay. of April. Um, we've been picked up by um, First Run Features as um, a distributor, and they are helping us to just distribute the film. So we, we've been distributing the film, you know, by word of mouth and through connections and friends and Facebook and social media. And now um, we don't have yeah. to run so hard because uh, First Run Features is picking it up for us. So they're advocating for us and trying to get wider distribution along with um, setting up showings and selling licenses to educational facilities. Awesome. So um, that's so amazing. Finally, yes. it's been a while. So I don't have to drag my old projector <laughs> around and go to all the libraries and me and Daryl be talking at all these places. I mean, it was really fun. We had this like traveling road show. But um, that this is will give so us a wider cool. reach. I'm just so glad to hear that. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of education that's needed. And I was just going to ask in, in wrapping up, if somebody is listening to this and they're thinking either for themselves or for, for a, a kid that they've got, you know, wow, I really need to look into this. What would your recommendation be? Like, what's the first one or two steps they should take? I think it's really helpful to have long-term, longer-term therapy, therapy that you stay in for a while, even if you may do a stay in a treatment center and you come back out again, because um, I think it's the relationship that you have with a, a helper, a neutral person outside the family who's also there for family members. That's really helpful because like um, Hannah said, it's a journey and it takes, um, Daryl was saying the same thing. It can take time. And there are layers to recovery. You know, there's the first phase of just getting your life back and, and repairing your brain and um, learning some of the skills you miss because you miss all these developmental stages when you're using. So you forget how to date or you never learned how to date or you don't know how to ask for help. You know, so all that has to be put together. And then you can do the work of, let me figure out where the pain is. You know, where did this all start? And you can begin to undo that. Right. So long-term, you know, therapists mm -hmm. that you trust and like, and it would be really helpful if they knew a little bit about not just addiction, but also. Well, any trauma. last words, anything I should have asked that I didn't, or that you just want to share with listeners? I just hope every one of your listeners goes into Amazon or Apple or iTunes and watches this incredible movie. Yes. It's around 56 minutes. It's appropriate for teenagers and above. Um, you could show it at work and all stuff. I don't care what your field is. There's some colleague that's impacted by addiction. And I think this would be great for HR teams to say, take time for this. 
Um, I just think it's really an incredible, uplifting, super informative, amazing, amazing film. I would agree. I would agree. And I do like that it's uh, it's appropriate for younger kids because you aren't seeing people shooting up and overdosing and all of that stuff that none of us need to see any more of. So good, really good point there. Hope or Daryl, any last words that you want to share? I mean, I would say for family members that are struggling to not give up, stay connected to the people that you love, even though sometimes it's really painful and very difficult. That's the reason that people get sober. They get sober eventually because they have people and they have love to go back to and they follow that trail back. So whatever you can do to stay connected um, doesn't mean you don't set limits. Um, You can set limits and you can take space, um, but you can still take your person out to lunch. You can still go out for breakfast. You can buy them some clothes, but stay connected because that is the one factor that I see in the people that um, do better is that they have people who love them that stayed with them and, um, and that don't underestimate the power of that. Yeah, I think Hope said it. It's interesting. As I was sitting here, I'm looking down. Someone just relapsed, and they're like trying to get a bed, and they're like, you know, can we help them get a bed? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I think that you know, first off, we just want to say to people that are in, you know, currently in active addiction, I love you. We love you. And um, keep you know, stick and stay, man. Until the miracle happens, and just for those family members, like you know, don't give up, but also keep it in mind that. I always talk about the pebbles and the boulders. It's not the boulders that we can see. It's the pebbles that trip us up. It's the pebbles that we slip on and, and tend to fall um, that trip us up. You know, um, boulders we can see, we can maneuver around them. It's the little things like that we didn't think about. Like, oh, I got a job in a restaurant. And I thought, you know, I got my first job in a restaurant. But I'm in active addiction. But those of us that worked in restaurants know that there's a lot of addiction in the back right. of the house of restaurants. <laughs> So I always try to say, well, you know, man, I don't know if you should get that job in the restaurant. Yeah. So, and but that's, that's a pebble that, you know, well, I got the job. I got a dishwashing job. Well, they get high in restaurants and or construction. You know, they drink on those. So, like, you know, unless you're really strong, strong in your recovery, you just have to think about those pebbles early. Like, I can't, you know, maybe you shouldn't be a, a job. Maybe you shouldn't work a job that where you get money or tips every night if money is a trigger, like, so just trying to work with our people and, and getting to understand and, you know, many swings, I had many swings at the bat before I got to hit one out mm. the park. And, um, yeah. And we know that at any time, you know, um, you just have to keep, you know, I just, for me, I pray to God that he keeps me grounded and humble on this journey because I love it so much. And I never wanted to define me as some, like I know it all because the second I think I know it all is the day that I'll be, you know, I may relapse and die. And so important to be connected with people like you, like so be connected with people who have been there, who can help you through it. Um, don't try to do it alone. Right. Get get plugged in. So thank you and congratulations on this amazing project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Brenda. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Watch the film and call us, call us, call us. We'll come, we'll, you know, we'll jump on Zoom. We'll do it. Let's do it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I'm going to host a viewing for my the moms in my community and the stream. So we'll all be watching. So your phones may be lighting up. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you would like to go to the show notes, you can always find those at brendazane.com forward slash podcast. Each episode is listed there with full transcript, all of the resources that we mention, as well as a place to leave comments if you would like to do that. You might also want to download a free ebook I wrote called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Addicted to Drugs. It's full of the information I wish I would have known when my son was struggling with his addiction. You can grab that at brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thanks again for listening, and I will meet you right back here next week.